Hello, this is The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about how big green may be taking over from big oil. We're going to be talking about how quickly the world can get off fossil fuels. And we're going to be asking what happened to hopes of achieving big climate benefits from alternative proteins. But we have unfortunately broken one of the cardinal rules of podcasting. We've invited on two guests with the same name. It's my great pleasure to be joined today by Amy Myers-Jaffe, who's the director of the Energy, Climate Justice and Sustainability Lab at New York University. Hi, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And also we're joined by Amy Harder, who's the executive editor of Cypher, which is an energy and climate news outlet supported by Breakthrough Energy, which is the climate investing and policy organization backed by Bill Gates. Hi, Amy. Thanks very much for joining us as well. Hello. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to both of you. So as I say, it's fantastic that we have two Amy's on today. To avoid confusion, though, Amy Myers-Jaffe, you think we could refer to you as AMJ. That's all right with you? That is my official nickname among former students and others from the climate tech space. They called me AMJ behind my back, and now they all call me AMJ to my face. So let's go with that. Fantastic. Absolutely. As you say, let's establish that with the listeners to the energy gang as well. I want to start off, though, Amy, with you by talking about what you were doing last week. You were at the Clean Power 2023 event in New Orleans, you were saying. Clean Power, for people who don't know, is a huge renewable energy conference that happens every year. I saw it just described in the Financial Times as the Coachella of clean energy, which is quite a nice way to put it. I think this year they had more than 8,000 people that were going, including several of my Wood Mackenzie colleagues were there speaking, giving presentations and so on. So, Amy, what did you make of this event? What did you think was interesting about what was going on there? Well, I've never been to the actual Coachella, but I think this conference was a little bit more constrained than probably what happens at the actual Coachella. But nonetheless, it really reflects the moment that we're at with clean energy since the Inflation Reduction Act passed, which is a humongous business opportunity. The exhibition hall was about a half mile long. People were getting in their steps going from one end to another. And just walking that hall, it was incredible to see all of the businesses that crop up to support the energy industry. There was this one that said something like the North Dakota riggers where, you know, you would have expected oil from North Dakota, but instead you had this business that are employing people to install these massive turbines that are as big or bigger than skyscrapers. So it really was staggering to see this massive industry. And it reflects where the renewable energy industry is. A quick backstory on the American Clean Power Association is actually a very new organization that formed just a few years ago with a merger of two separate trade associations, the Energy Storage Association and the American Wind Energy Association. And now it's really trying to be a counterpoint to a certain degree to big oil and big fossil fuels to represent the companies that are pursuing renewable energy. Now, as I think we'll get into, there is some overlap and that is causing some controversy in terms of BP and Shell are members of both the American Petroleum Institute and ACP, as it's called. So one last reflection on the conference. I was there this year in New Orleans and also there two years ago. And compared to two years ago, this was so much bigger. So it's really exciting to see. And we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, as you say, I think it's really fascinating. Obviously, it's well known how the clean energy industry has transformed itself 
over the past decade. It's fascinating to see just how big it is now. And as you say, that really being crystallized by an event like Clean Power 2023. And as you say, the extent to which we had big oil, now we have big green and a lot of big companies being involved in this and the industry as a whole being a very big deal. You probably saw there was an interesting line from Fatty Birrell, executive director of the International Energy Agency, the other day. He pointed out that probably worldwide, there will be more money invested in solar power in total than is invested in oil production. So that just gives you a sense really of, as I say, how this industry, which perhaps still has a little bit of an image as scrappy insurgent, just kind of on the rise, battling bravely against the hugely dominant forces of the oil and gas industry, not really true anymore. That, as you say, there is big, big money in clean energy now, and things have changed a great deal. Did it feel like that in terms of the kind of the mood there? I mean, I know, Amy, you've got a long track record reporting on the energy industry. You've reported on the oil and gas industry a lot down the years, as well as now focusing on clean energy and climate tech. Does it feel like the clean energy industry is now in a position where it's sort of on a par with the oil and gas industry? Or are there still some significant differences? I think they're certainly getting there. One interesting anecdote is that the American Clean Power Association just hired away the American Petroleum Institute's top policy official. Basically, the second or third in command at API is now representing the industry. It had previously sought to fight in many ways. And so that shows that they're trying to play up in those big leagues. An interesting anecdote was I was actually there to moderate a panel featuring energy leaders from different sectors. We had a natural gas official on stage and a nuclear energy institute official as well. And one of the questions from the audience was that, hey, how can we consider nuclear power and natural gas at all part of the climate solution? And to me, that question, which got a lot of votes in terms of the way they did the Q&A session, is show that there is continuing disagreement about what energy sources should be considered part of the solution. And I appreciated that ACP was trying to have this conversation and force this debate. I think there's a lot of difference of opinions in that, especially among sort of the more legacy wind and solar folks who don't really want to share the stage, perhaps, with some of these other energy technologies. So AMJ, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about big oil giving way to big green? I think there's a lot more intersection than people admit. And so you have some entities that are branded as green, but actually their funding is coming from big oil. And of course, what we've seen in the last year or two is that literally two thirds of the exits for climate tech firms have been acquisitions by big oil. And so you have this problem where big oil is doing some pretty important things and they've got the money to scale and they're one of the few places around that have the money to scale, unless you're you know, in federal dollars, private sector wise. And yet there's just this real distrust and the distrust intensifies as you get closer to things that have failed in the past. So I feel like the highest distrust on the meter scale might be carbon sequestration and storage. You know, honestly, we have our stories that we tell each other when we're alone in the dark. You know, one of the big things I did back when I was based in California is I threw a retreat in Napa Valley wine country 
and I brought the big leaders from the tech industry that were focused on energy technologies and data for energy efficiency and so forth. And then I brought, politically incorrect, brought big oil to meet with them. And I actually brought a couple of shale companies too, because I felt like in California, you had this whole set of narratives about how oil and gas was totally passed and running out. And then you had the shale guys who were saying that solar and wind and all these technologies would never hit and they're too expensive, which of course was equally untrue. And so I felt like as a person flying between the Bay Area and Houston, that everybody just thought I was incorrect and that they needed to hear it from each other. And indeed, after that meeting, which was a several day meeting, people did joint ventures because they had common interests, they had technical knowledge. And really where we get in the playing field on the commercial side, huge amount of synergies. Where our problem comes is the way people act in the political space. So what am I paying my lobbyists to say? What am I trying to get in a bill on Capitol Hill? What am I doing in a legislature like Texas, which we discussed last week with Michael Weber? So you get into the details of what I'm trying to game using political leverage compared to actually the business of the transition, where there's a tremendous amount of synergy and opportunity, and the very companies that environmentalists are worried about are out there making deals. Yeah, that is very interesting. And going back to that point about the clean energy industry starting as an insurgency, if you like, certainly starting as kind of a new entrant, much smaller player in the market, there was definitely a sense in the early days of the clean energy industry, that it was at least in part mission-driven. It was about tackling climate change. It was about solving the big problems facing humanity. They have this narrative about providing light, but they also know about the pollution and the impact on all kinds of communities. Like, in the end, that's real. But I think the bottom line here is that I speak at conventions in both sectors and in the utility sector. And what I find people want me to add a slide on is workforce development. And when you're talking workforce development today, you're talking about mission-driven. And that means that even if you're a company like anybody from Amazon to ExxonMobil to a midstream natural gas company, you have to show you're intending to clean up or you won't be able to recruit. So how do you see it, Amy? Do you see these two cultures, which were once very distinct and oppositional, kind of now coming together and converging? I think in some ways on the ground, you are seeing a lot of overlap. I think politically, it gets really messy. And we're seeing that in the ongoing debate around the debt ceiling deal and to what degree that is going to support renewable energy build-out versus fossil fuel build-out. But ultimately, you're seeing a lot of pragmatic crossover between these two industries. So it's it's sort of a parallel world. You have the on-the-ground labor workforce issues, and then you have the politics, which play out very differently. I think in terms of to what degree workers in the fossil fuel space can go transition to renewable energy, it's certainly not a one-to-one sometimes. The skills that fossil fuel workers have may be more suitable for construction, totally outside of energy. So there's the mismatch there is certainly real. So let's talk about that debt ceiling issue for getting on for a year now. That's been a big issue in Washington. There was a sense that when the Inflation Reduction Act got passed last summer with these big increases in tax credits for all kinds of low carbon energy, there was a sense then that 
permitting reform, reform of the rules to make it easier to build infrastructure was an essential part of that deal. And essentially, if all you did was pile on the tax credits without also improving the regulatory climate, then you weren't actually going to get all that additional investment that you need in order to decarbonize the power system, head towards a net, net zero economy. Now, just over the weekend, we do seem to have had some real progress on that. The details are clearly are still being worked out and Congress has not decided yet and we're still working towards that deadline. It looks like June the 5th seems to be the date that everyone has settled on as the date when the US wouldn't be able to pay its bills unless there was a deal. And so everyone's kind of working on that kind of deadline towards an agreement before June the 5th. But in the agreement that's provisionally been reached, there is this deal which essentially would streamline permitting for infrastructure projects, would make it easier for them to go ahead in a pretty broad brush kind of way and in a way that would help renewable energy and transmission projects for renewables, but would also help oil and gas infrastructure, would, for instance, help people build new pipelines for oil and gas, new LNG export terminals, and so on. And in the run-up to this deal being reached over the past few months, there's been this, you could say, strange bedfellows kind of alliance where, as you say, groups like American Clean Power, some of the other groups representing the renewables industry have backed permitting reform in an alliance with groups representing the oil and gas industry and other groups representing American businesses more generally. I mean, Amy, how do you feel about this kind of deal? I mean, I don't know how closely you've looked into the specific deal that we've been hearing about over the weekend, but just in general terms, do you think it's a deal worth taking to accept some liberalization on the oil and gas infrastructure side in order to make it easier to build renewable energy infrastructure? I would have two observations, sort of one specific and then a larger one. Specifically, it looks to me just trying to figure out the details in real time, realizing they could change between the time that I'm saying this and the time that this podcast airs. But it looks like there were some improvements, some changes and restrictions put on the National Environmental Policy Act reviews and controversially approving the Mountain Valley Pipeline that um, Senator Joe Manchin has wanted. And so the ACP organization we just spoke of about at their conference has praised the permitting components, but said it's just a down payment on what will need to be a lot more. There really isn't anything binding on transmission other than a study, which is classic Washington speak for let's punt this for another day. So I think some critics are saying that this is what happens when you compromise with Republicans and fossil fuels. They get what they want and the renewable energy gets less than what they want. I think there might be some truth to that, but it's still a little bit early to say. I think there does need to be more done on transmission. And the biggest risk I see from this deal is that once this deal is done, whatever's not in it doesn't have any sort of urgency to pass later, uh, especially Manchin. He may just check out now that he has his pipeline approved. My larger observation is just the fascinating world that we're living in post-passage of the IRA. We're hearing lots of headlines and seeing lots of headlines about strange bedfellows and surprising alliances to the point that they're not so strange or surprising anymore. And that's actually the topic of my call I'm publishing this week in, in Cypher about what I'm calling the wild and wonky new world, where we're fighting over permitting and interconnection cues instead of, is climate change real? And these 
fights are confusing and complicated and they do create new alliances that may not always work. So those are just some a few observations. AMJ, what do you think? Permitting cuts both ways in the sense that it's not like trying to get permitting for offshore wind or even for a solar farm is like a piece of cake. And transmission, you know, hurts everyone when we can't get energy to the right place. So I feel a little pessimistic that there's anything that could be done from the federal government to really, quote unquote, solve the problem in the sense that you have a lot of states that have different considerations. We you know, know that from just trying to build a line from hydro in Canada down through New England. And states have different solutions. And of course, no matter what solution people pick and no matter what the law would be, there's still going to be a lawsuit, which can also delay things. So I definitely agree that permitting reform is only kind of part of the picture and it's probably necessary but not sufficient in terms of really accelerating the pace of development of new renewable energy projects and transmission to support them. I want to move on a moment. Before we do, though, I just kind of a, as a final thought on this one, I just wanted to kind of step back. And to, to your point, Amy, about strange alliances and the way that kind of big green and, and big oil often seem to be kind of aligned together. This makes me think about my Twitter fight with Naomi Klein. You probably know the writer, you know, no logo, etc. Certainly a very interesting thinker, I'd say, but I don't always agree with that. Anyway, one thing I particularly disagreed with her on, she's written this book called This Changes Everything. And it basically saying that sort of the threat of climate change means we need complete reorganization of our economies in the West, essentially to kind of abandon capitalism. And the way she put it on Twitter, she said, basically, it's the climate or capitalism you choose. And I replied to her and said, well, I think that's really bad framing, because if you ask people to choose between the climate and capitalism, a lot of people are going to choose capitalism. And she replied to me saying, oh, this is, this is a very sort of revealing answer. This is very telling about the way a lot of people think. Do you mind if I quote you on that in the future? And I said, no, no, please do. Go ahead. Fine by me. I don't think, to my knowledge, ever did quote me on that. But this was my brush with fame, my argument with a, a famous uh, personality. But what I did think was interesting about it was that point that, so she's saying we need to change the entire economic organization of our society to fight climate change. I was saying, I think actually, if you think that, if you really are trying to change the entire economic organization of society, as well as fighting climate change, that actually makes your job harder. It doesn't make it easier. It makes it more difficult. And actually, the way to fight climate change it has to be through existing social organizations, companies, governments, whatever it is that we've got, the economic structures that we have. And if that's the case, it's kind of inevitable, it seems to me, that you are going to get the big green industry emerging. You are going to get these kind of alliances between low carbon and high carbon energy producers and so on, because those are the structures and institutions that we've got. I mean, am I right about that? Or am I just being very kind of blind to what I guess is Naomi Klein's point is that actually these institutions fundamentally put barriers in the path of decarbonization, and you're never going to really get the progress we need. You're never going to get to net zero emissions working with those existing institutions. Don't know. What do you think? Well, this is something that I think about a lot, and I find myself sort of doing mental and emotional and intellectual ping pong. Sometimes I think we're not doing anything within the current system we have. 
Capitalism is so rooted in more, 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 more growth being tied to quarterly profits. But then the ping pong goes to the other side of my head and you have to work within the, the bounds that we have. And I think ultimately I do land where you are as well, Ed, but there's a lot of changes. I did a column once saying we have to bend capitalism to work better, to work for climate change instead of against. But it's, it's a topic that even though is somewhat academic and that we're probably never going to get rid of capitalism, it's still a topic that people like to talk about because we get frustrated with the current system we live in. And so I'm like, oh, I'm frustrated. And then I'm like, well, but I have to accept the world we live in. And so I can relate to people, but ultimately I, I do think we need to learn how to bend capitalism because we're not going to get rid of it. So talking about the role of governments is a great segue into the next thing I want to talk about, which is the recent G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. These summits getting the leaders of what I guess you would call loosely the West developed economies together doesn't usually produce anything very momentous. It's mostly just a useful way for world leaders to meet each other, to get to know each other a little bit, to help the next time there's a crisis. But people have been saying that this Hiroshima G7 did have some more substantive outcomes compared to the usual ones. And energy was one of the areas where they had quite a bit to say. Now, AMJ, I know you've been talking to people about the G7 and, and what the goals are and what they've been discussing there. Who have you been talking to about this? So we had a panel that was organized by the Global Strategic Communications Council, GSCC, prior to the G7, sort of doing an overview of what were you know the key issues here when it came to climate change. And what is that body? What is its role and who backs it? So there are like a group of NGO, which is a group brings together communication specialists that have strong interest in climate change, energy, and the preservation of nature. And people had different agendas, as you can imagine, depending on what country they came from, the different member states of the G7. And really at issue is kind of a little bit what we're talking about earlier, just in the U.S. context, which is this question. So the G7 had these very tricky things they had to navigate because different individual countries have different fuels they don't want to reject or they don't want to reject in a certain time frame. And so, you know, the Japanese are looking at uh, different paths to hydrogen that are not universally accepted in the environmental community. You've got Germany wanting some exceptions for natural gas, new projects if they're going to need that, or other European states are going to need that to cope with the Russian issue. And so the G7 sort of had this compromise communique talking about investment in natural gas being a temporary step for energy security and not sort of fully endorsing natural gas, but not fully rejecting natural gas. And then you had this other statement about fully or predominantly, I love that word, fully or predominantly decarbonized power sector by 2035 was another wording solution. The critical thing is that, and it doesn't bode well for the Conference of the Party meetings in the UAE uh, next this coming fall, is they really failed to set a deadline for the permanent phase out of unabated coal. And that had been a, a goal for the meeting. It was hard to get a bigger group of countries behind that wording, even within the G7. And so that kind of leaves us in this weird place because you're already having this debate in the global context 
about whether the conference of the party language should be to have a permanent ban on all fossil fuel use by a certain period or whether to have a ban on emissions from fossil fuel use by a certain period. Amy, what did you make of what the G7 said? I think it's a really clear indication of the continuing impacts of the energy crisis that was exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think the lack of the agreement to phase out unabated coal is a sign that the crisis has, you know, really shuffled the deck in terms of what countries are depending upon. I think AMJ mentioned this a moment ago, but, you know, Japan looking to repurpose some of its coal plants with ammonia and marketing that as clean coal. I think a lot of, and Japan is an acute example of a country that's impacted by the global energy crisis, considering its dependence on importing energy. And so even the United States, President Biden really tries to hold the climate mantle. But in these negotiations, the State Department and others really underscore the role of natural gas. And I think one headline that comes to my mind is natural gas is an inconvenient part of our climate solution right now. And that has implications for reaching goals out into 2050. But I think that's where the world is right now. And I think that creates a very controversial stage for the UN conference in Dubai later this year. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting section of the G7 communique where they talk about very explicitly in the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, dependence of many other countries on Russian energy trying to end that dependence. And they say, here we go, in this context, we stress the important role that increased deliveries of LNG, liquefied natural gas, can play. And we acknowledge that investment in this sector can be appropriate in response to the current crisis and to address potential gas market shortfalls provoked by the crisis. So in other words, exactly what you're saying, as you say, that at a time when we've just had skyrocketing natural gas prices and everyone's still very worried about natural gas security, energy security in general, how the world's going to do without Russian natural gas in particular, it's a very, very sensitive issue. And it's interesting, and just going back to AMJ's point about infrastructure and repurposing infrastructure from high carbon to low carbon energy and the advantages of that, they do talk about ways perhaps that uh, increased LNG supplies could be, as they say, implemented in a manner consistent with our climate objectives without creating lock-in effects. In other words, saying that if you have infrastructure that you can use for LNG now and in the short term, that in the longer term could be used for low-carbon energy supplies, in particular, I guess, low-carbon hydrogen, that is something that they are interested in. But even so, as you say, Amy, that overarching kind of theme does seem to be very much, we have a crisis, this is something that we need to address. So we have to be clear, though, because we're not using any LNG export or receiving terminals for anything but LNG. The pipelines and the storage tanks, you might be able to convert to use for hydrogen or a blend, but all this money we're spending on LNGs for LNG and LNG alone. Yeah. And so this is a convenient fiction. It's a story that people like to tell themselves to say, hey, it's fine to be investing in all this new LNG infrastructure because one day it'll be useful in a net zero energy system. There's a great deal of wishful thinking, perhaps even constructive obfuscation going on there. A little bit too wishful. You know, I got in at an energy panel at a big conference in Washington. Because my point was, if you think about how long it's going to take you to go through all your circumstances for a new greenfield, so that's starting from scratch, LNG export terminal in the United States, say that's a five-year process to approve it and build it, 
And then, you know, how long's your runway for selling that LNG? I think there's a lot of uncertainty because, you know, you're going to want to amortize that plant over a 20 or 25 year period. And, you know, maybe you would do better with offshore wind that's going to do green hydrogen, which might be too expensive this year and next year. But, you know, by the time you'd get your LNG terminal built, maybe the costs for electrolyzers would be a lot lower because you've got Australia and others working on these innovative electrolyzers that they say are going to be extremely inexpensive. Good point. Good point. Although then that depends on whether you believe that the world really is going to stay on this pathway towards net zero emissions and whether people are still going to be putting pressure on this and still favoring low carbon energy technologies. Or also, I guess, that other point, as you mentioned, MJ, earlier, which is carbon capture and maybe carbon capture and sequestration is going to be the technology that will unlock a lot of this, make it possible to continue using fossil fuels. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, I hate when people go silver bullet because there's a wonderful professor at University of Houston in Houston who did some sort of, not back of the envelope, actually scientific calculations and asked the question, you know, well, we're really talking about the amount of carbon to store or mineralize that we're talking about. Do we actually have space to do that? And I don't study that, but her answer was no. And so, you know, we really do need to do a tremendous amount of clean energy, and we should only be using CCS for things where clean energy or the certain high heat, pretty hard to do with electricity or unbelievably expensive to do with electricity. So, you know, the Biden administration gave these tax credits. They basically doubled them from $45 a ton to $85. And then you get somebody like Lehigh Hansen in Mitchell, Indiana, you know, actually putting CCS on a concrete plant. I mean, that's a good outcome because you're probably not going to be able to electrify the processes at that plant. But if you're talking about something where you have another way of going that's more low carbon and more direct, we don't want to have a tremendous amount of carbon that we have to store. The way the debate is set up, which is, should we do this or should we do that? Is, you know, not the right debate. I mean, the debate is, and then, you know, people accuse the oil industry, they're just trying to lengthen the runway for themselves by saying they're going to store the carbon. So what we really need is to do as much clean energy as possible, as much, as much, as much, and as fast as we can, which means that, yes, the fossil fuel companies need to do clean, low-carbon fuels. And then where we can't get there, that's when we should be talking about CCS. And if we can anticipate something today where we could get rid of the carbon emissions today from a concrete, cement, or steel plant by putting in CCS, you know, let's do it because we don't quite have a technology there yet. I, I definitely think that's right. Yeah. So, Amy, MJ just now mentioned COP28, looking ahead to COP28 and what might come out of that. What are your expectations for that meeting? Do you think it's going to be a significant one? Do you think we're going to see progress? I think that is a really difficult question to answer at this point in time. I think some recent actions have underscored just how controversial and momentous this conference could be. The COP organizers inviting um, Bashar al-Assad, the leader of Syria, to be at the table definitely increases the element of potential concern outside of the climate realm, right? Like first we were talking about 
the influence of fossil fuels, and that's all legitimate and a, a good debate to have. But now we're outside of the climate realm and getting into human rights and, and things like that. So that really ups the ante a bit. We saw a letter from lawmakers both in the U.S. and Europe calling for sort of new leadership. For me, what I'll be watching is to see to what degree the State Department and John Kerry specifically changed their tune because they have been pretty supportive of uh, the COP president, Sultan al-Jabbar. I think we do need to have a conversation, a very real candid one about how do we reconcile our fossil fuel dependence with the urgency to address climate change. I don't know if this is the right way to have it, but it is certainly raising the conversation and producing a lot of heated comments about it, which can be a good thing, ultimately. Why a good thing? In my experience, I've been to several COPs. A lot of times people are talking in silos. So you have environmentalists and activists chanting, you know, catchy phrases and chants that talk about the urgency of addressing climate change. And then you have the fossil fuel executives in a room by themselves talking about how they're going to increase production. We need all of these people talking together. I don't know if this will be the form where that occurs effectively, especially with actions like inviting Bashar al-Assad. I think that changes things. But I do think we need to get out of talking in silos. And maybe this can be the form. AMJ, how high are your hopes for COP28? You know, I think there's a lot of work to do, and I'm sympathetic to the idea that the UAE, I mean, they're increasing their oil production, but they've also invested a huge amount in using nuclear energy and in promoting solar energy. And so I think the problem we have is that if I'm a dirty industry, right, when do I get to the point in my activity where I count as a transitioning industry? Like, I don't think we have a good definition. You know, if I'm dirty originally, am I dirty forever? Or is there a moment in time when the predominance of my investment might push me in a different direction? I think that one of the things that I see from the global finance side is that in past global banking crises, some of the countries from the Middle East have played an unbelievably constructive role in stabilizing the global banking sector. In Latin America, back in the day, more recently with Greece, they've played a very, a particularly good responsible role when we've had these sort of banking crises, though one could argue that maybe we wouldn't have had the banking crisis without the high price of oil. But anyway, that's for another show. So my point to you is, if you're thinking about climate finance, and you're understanding that there's a deficit of funding. The G7 was silent on the loss of damage fund, which is a really important fund and needs to get funded. And you ask yourself, how are we going to get money for that? We're going to need cooperation from a lot of different countries. You know, it just can't be the OECD. We need to have a broader coalition of countries that are going to participate in helping the countries that really need to be getting on their feet not only for decarbonization, but also for recovery from uh, climate impact. You know, the Stockholm Institute had this idea that I loved, which is that, you know, you're trying to come up with something to tax or someone to tax. And of course, the big thing everybody says is let's tax the oil companies. But, you know, if there was a small tax on every airline ticket sold in the world by every single country that had a national airline and you had to pay a tax and the money went directly to the loss and damage fund, that'd be a pretty efficient way of doing it. 
and you wouldn't be taking the money away from people who don't go on trips and planes and don't own cars and don't have electricity because they're not the ones that are taking airline trips. You could really capture that 1% or 5% of, of global wealth to put the money in the global loss and damage fund. So I feel like when I hear a lot of the debate at the COPs, I feel like there's these simple solutions, maybe simple is too strong a word, but there are these workable solutions and we don't get to them. And maybe that's the fossil fuel countries throwing it up there, but we're throwing up these smokescreen problems and then the activists are just objecting to people being in the room and we're not able to make the progress we need to make. Yeah, yeah, I do think that's a great idea. Actually, it would be very interesting to see what progress that proposal makes. So last thing I want to talk about, I want to end just thinking about difficult times in the alternative protein business. Impossible Foods, Beyond Meat, some of those other companies in the sector have been cutting jobs. I was looking at Beyond Meat's share price. That peaked at about $235 in the summer of 2019. It's about $10 just this week. Impossible Foods had been talking about IPOing, now says that's not going to happen this year. And clearly, these things have potentially very big implications for climate and for emissions generally, because agriculture is a very important contributor to anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And beef in particular is a very significant contributor. And if we could get rid of the emissions from beef, the climate benefits could be huge. Amy, I know you've been taking a look at this sector and and thinking about it. What's your impression of what's gone wrong with these plant-based meat substitute companies? I think it's a combination of things, much like any sort of declining sector facing challenges. I think one was is the overall economy and people not necessarily wanting to pay more for something they're not used to. I think bigger than that is just the basic desire to eat something that is actually extremely processed. So, and I should just disclose, I grew up on a cattle ranch. I still have ownership in land through my family that raises cattle. And I've written about that in Axios when I was there. So happy to share that link with your listeners. Uh, But I think the challenges that these companies are facing raises a question of, is this what consumers want? And, And by this being technologies that enable meat to be made in ways without using meat. So that's, you know, Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat using these highly processed materials or another growing trend, which is lab-grown meat, I think which could actually face even more challenges. I think we should ask ourselves, does the consumer want to eat something like this? And when, when I look at this topic, I see sort of three ways to address the emissions from cattle in particular, but also all livestock. And the first is to transition to other food altogether. I actually don't eat that much red meat. I love sort of the traditional Morningstar veggie burgers that are just made from black beans and things like that. Then one popular way that's becoming more popular is to neutralize the emissions through something like seaweed feed um, for cows that can cut down emissions 30 to 40% from cows. And then you make it without the emissions and without that, the cow itself through plant or lab-based meats. And I think because of the challenges companies like Impossible have been facing, I think we'll see more efforts to just take the methane out of the cows instead of taking the cows out of the equation. Uh, that will help perhaps meet consumers where they are. Yeah, because it is kind of amazing to me if you look at the numbers for just how bad 
beef is for the climate. It's, it's, uh, I think these are numbers from the Food and Agriculture Organization. Livestock are responsible for about 14.5% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. Of those, about two-thirds come from cattle for beef and dairy. So it's about 10% of all greenhouse gas emissions of human origin come from cattle for beef and for dairy. That is about the same as the total carbon dioxide emissions from every single coal-fired power plant in the world. So it is huge. And as you say, you talk about emissions from the cows. That's, you know, to be clear about this, the famous cow burps and farts, right? They're responsible for, I think, about 40% of the emissions from the livestock. So that is a huge part of it. AMJ, what's your feeling about this? If we were really going to be serious about reducing emissions from food in general, but from livestock and from beef in particular, what should we do? I think it's coming. And I think that you can't just judge it from the fact that Beyond Meat has had declining sales. I mean, one of the things is those companies all had a big surge in 2020 when people were afraid that their meat might have COVID on it because you had the meat packer issue. And then we had cyber attacks on meat plants. So meat prices went way up. So, you know, you had a specific group of people who shifted onto these products, not because they were climate conscious, but because they had meat fear. And now, of course, they've moved away from that. But I do think that we have to look at whether the vegan lifestyle is a trending lifestyle among generational people and and others. And so I always tell people about Brazil, because Brazil is the largest beef exporter in the world. Infamously, under President Bolsonaro, uh, there was an escalation in the deforestation of the Amazon and making space for land for cattle and grain feed. It's not just the animals burping. it's, It's what we're doing with land use. So the interesting thing is people wanted to protest against the cattle industry in Brazil. And as a result, you had some important influencers like Philippe Nito and others who turned vegan as a form of social protest. You got to the point where something like 15% of the Brazilian population today is vegan. Self-proclaimed, it was done polling, self-proclaimed vegans. And so Here's a statistic that I think should be mindful. Maybe the United States would be the last place that'll move to this. But Outback Steakhouse in Brazil, the chain, has added a broccoli cauliflower burger option in Brazil. And that is because so many people have turned vegan. And even JBS, which is the big meat processor, they've started a plant-based process product and, you know, it didn't work out too well in the U.S. They, they closed their operations in the U.S. for plant-based meats at the end of 2022, but they're still selling in Brazil and Europe. And I think that just focusing on the sort of meat substitute that tastes like meat is not the real story. The real story is, am I going to eat other things that taste good that are not meat-based? Yeah, I, de- right? I, I definitely think that's right. I, the impossible meat. Beyond Meat products, they're not bad. I quite like them, but you sort of feel like, to Amy's point, they're very heavily processed. And if that's what you want, you might go for the real thing. But actually just changing your diet just to eat more fruits and vegetables, actually to eat more rice and bread as well, even if you don't go vegetarian, shifting from beef to poultry for your meat is a huge difference. Yeah, chicken is 
five to six kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram eaten versus beef, which is 60. So even just shifting to poultry alone is a huge carbon statement. And then if you go to tofu, that's half as much as chicken. And if you're eating Chinese food or you're stir frying something, you know, it's a lifestyle choice. It's a health choice. So I do think that people will change their diets over time. And the other thing I think that's coming is if you're in a hurry, okay, you're going out to dinner, fancy dinner, you know, have some of these foods. But if you're just on the run, more and more people eat these protein bars. You know, Ed, as you know, when we did the scenarios exercise, you know, one of the groups came up with this sort of this topic idea that people wouldn't be able to leave their homes. So they'd be eating protein bars as a way of life because they wouldn't be able to go out and buy, you know, food from the local farm. But when you think about it, a lot of people eat protein bars and that's sort of, we're talking about habits. What is the habit about how I view food? So what's your expectation, Amy? Do you think people's diets and habits are really going to change significantly over time? I think they'll continue to evolve. I think we're going to see diets change differently in different parts of the world, Asia, particularly China. The latest statistics I've seen shows a, a great increase in meat consumption because traditionally you've seen a direct correlation between the growth of an economy and a, a population's livelihood with meat consumption. I think to what degree that can that tide can change will do a lot with regards to emissions. I also think in the US with regards to protein bars, I don't personally eat protein bars, but I do think over time you will see people want to eat healthier and to the degree that correlates with a better climate, that would be great. I do think some of these issues are really cross-cutting. For example, you know, chicken, the carbon footprint of a chicken is directly correlated to how tightly they're grown. And so animal rights activists look at, you know, a chicken farm with chickens, you know, living in these tiny, tiny quarters. I mean, that's pretty miserable versus a cow that is freeing, walking across the, a range of a cattle ranch. I think we're sort of splitting hairs a little bit because they both obviously end up dead on our plates. But, you know, it's not always the same. And same thing with our organic food. Growing organic food is, is worse for the climate because it takes up more land than non-organic food. So some of these issues are really conflicting each other. And I think ultimately people are going to do what's what they like from a taste perspective and what's healthy. You know, people are more likely to buy an electric car than give up meat, for example. I think it's actually pretty complicated because it's not just the land. It's what was I going to use the land for and what am I changing? If I'm taking down forest land or grassland... Uh, to do more and more agriculture, then yeah, that's a problem. And then one of the big things is, you know, am I using manufactured nitrogen fertilizer or not? Because that, you know, then I'm talking about CO2 release plus N2O nitrous oxide release. Um, and I'm talking about river runoff and creating a dead zone in the ocean, which is already, you know, in a bad state. So, you know, you have a lot of push for regenerative agriculture, Part of the reason that's interesting is not just for climate reasons, but also because we're trying to build resilience because as climate affects availability of water and arable land, you know, China has this crisis now with the availability of arable land. And so there have been these problems that we really need to address. And that's why when we look at something like the COP meetings, we're just not having enough real conversations that are evidence-based, that are landed in the science, that look at things like 
which we need to do, which, you know, with the G7 talked about the just energy transition partnerships, you know, when you're talking about countries like Indonesia and Brazil, you know, we're talking about land use. And when you're talking about even countries in Africa, you know, we're talking about some of that, we're talking about land use. So, and putting people in livelihoods that are different kinds of livelihoods. So I think that we really need to have sort of a more technical conversation. And then we need to move that technical conversation into the political landscape. And we need to, when we spend a lot of time on this emissions from fossil fuels versus fossil fuels wording for one sentence, and we're detracting from having a universal policy about taxing airline travel or a universal policy about automobiles, you know, we could have a global standard for efficiency for buildings or automobiles or something like that. That would not be complicated. It would be complicated because countries would resist it, but we know what standards are working in what countries. And so if we could just get all the big industrialized countries to do move to these ambitious policies, we'd be in a good place. So I guess that's, you know, kind of how I feel about land use is the same thing. If we could get to a common understanding of what are best practices for agriculture and for land use. We do just about have to wrap it up there. Before we go, as usual, time for our free electrons, personal items you just want to raise. AMJ, do you want to do yours first? What have you got for us? Okay, I'll go first. So there was a meeting of the World Meteorological Organization over the weekend, and they have elevated the cryosphere for immediate attention and science communication. And the World Meteorological Congress, it's the uh, top decision-making body of that group, has endorsed a new resolution calling for more coordinated observations and data exchange. And what are they worried about? They're worried about melting permafrost, releasing uh, methane in massive quantities in the atmosphere, They're worried about how the melting of glacial ice is affecting water accumulation and sea level rise, talking about the fate of uh, coastal communities. They're even linked. We think of the floods in Pakistan as being related to the monsoon, but actually, apparently, they were related to mountainous melting. Um, And we're having more information about the pace of melting in Antarctica and in the Arctic And so that's my free electron is to learn from them and understand more about these rapid impacts that we don't talk about every day. Yeah, some really important work going on there, clearly. And all the times that people talk about the cost of the energy transition and the difficulties in getting to net zero, some of which we've been talking about on this show just now, it's really important to remember the costs and risks of inaction as well and the consequences if we do allow the climate to continue to change unchecked. Amy, what's yours? Mine is building off the permitting discussion we had earlier. Cypher, we have a small but mighty team around the world. We have somebody in in Brussels, just hired somebody in Abu Dhabi, and we have a DC reporter. So as, as I'm editing a lot of these stories, it really is fascinating to see and compare and contrast how these processes are around the world. And so Anka Gerzu, our Brussels-based correspondent, did this great article the other day about how Europe's permitting processes are still very much dependent upon printing out paper, mounds and mounds of paper to complete the permitting process. And I'm just quoting here, you need 70 folders for just three to four wind turbines in Germany. 
And in Italy, developers are spending up to 43,000 US dollars just to print and photocopy papers to do the permitting process. And so although I hear in the US, everybody complains about our process, it sounds like it's pretty worse in Europe. And it's just always important to keep that context because we are all on one planet sharing the same climate, more or less. And yet the systems are really different. So I thought that was just an incredible, ridiculous anecdote that highlights an important issue around the world. Yeah, that is a great point and a great illustration of the way that people can often fail to look beyond their national borders and people get too focused on what's going on in their own country, their own jurisdiction. And it's really important to look around the world and to be able to make those comparisons to understand what's going on in other countries, because that can both be really important in terms of what's happening there, but also teach you very important lessons about your own country. Yeah, it's a great point to have. My Free Electron is also something that we've just been doing at Wood Mackenzie. We've just published a new big report on nuclear power called The Nuclear Option. It's available if you want to look it up on woodmac.com slash horizons. And particular reason I wanted to mention it was just I had quite an interesting debate with a couple of people. We were just on LinkedIn talking about it just earlier today and actually had a bit of a debate on it on Twitter as well, about the concept of LCOE, levelized cost of electricity, levelized cost of energy, some people sometimes call it, and which is a kind of a standard metric for how much different forms of power generation are costing. And on those metrics, nuclear power typically comes off really badly when compared to wind and solar power, something like maybe sort of four times the cost of nuclear compared to the cost of wind and solar. And then people are challenging that point and saying, well, it's not really a very interesting or useful comparison because obviously wind and solar are variable. They're dependent on the weather, time of day, etc. Nuclear offers different advantages to the grid in terms of being always available. It supports grid stability and so on. So it's a kind of an apples and oranges comparison. Therefore, this whole LCOE, levelized cost of electricity analysis is bunk. You should reject it all and just forget about it. And I just want to say, actually, it's not completely bunk that there is something it's actually useful to know. It's not the whole story. It doesn't tell you everything. But there is genuine information in being able to compare the cost of a megawatt hour from wind and solar compared to the cost of a megawatt hour from nuclear or a gas fire plant or any other source. And the fact that wind and solar are really cheap is actually telling you something important. It is telling you that is a genuinely cheap way to get your electricity, even though there's all the caveats and the restrictions about time of day and place and et cetera, et cetera, that go with it. And so, as I say, that's just my kind of thought on that is it's a reminder that levelized cost of electricity analysis does mean something and it's still worth looking at, even if it doesn't give the whole picture. So we do have to leave it there. It's been great talking to you both, Amy and AMJ. I think we just about managed to clear up the confusion. Many thanks to you, Amy Harder. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. And many thanks to you, Amy Myers-Jeffy, AMJ. Great to see you both. Many thanks to our producers, Toby Biggins-Gilchrist and Sam Nash. And above all, of course, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. Please do let us know. You can find us on Twitter at, at The Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon as at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. And we'll be back again in two weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>